0: This is patient care theory two, unit one, part two B, respiratory review. I don't think we um, did this. Uh, I think we finished off on the previous slide. So if you're describing someone who's having difficulty breathing to another medic or to a receiving nurse, what sort of descriptors would you use? And what sort of terminology? Shortness of breath or? I can read your lips. N- dyspnea, I think is what you said. <laughs> uh, yeah, shortness of breath. Or d- what's the distinction between shortness of breath and dyspnea? Dyspnea. Paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. <laughs> Are you having paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea? What's the distinction between shortness of breath and dyspnea? Yeah. I'm not sure if this is correct, but with dyspnea, aren't, isn't
1: there...
0: That uh, no, uh, would be apnea. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just. Yeah, dyspnea is physically difficult. So like rib fractures, it would be physically difficult. If you had pulmonary edema, it would be physically difficult. If you had bronchospasm, physically difficult. Shortness of breath would be something like you're having a heart attack. And there's nothing wrong with your lungs, but you feel short of breath because your heart is ischemic. Or uh, you walk up three flights of stairs, you feel short of breath. Now that would be a normal thing or uh, you have a pulmonary embolus, you feel short of breath, right? because there's nothing blocking your lungs, it's just blocking the blood vessel that supplies blood to your lungs. So shortness of breath is a perception of not being able to catch your breath. Now, as I said last year, most people use dyspnea and shortness of breath interchangeably, but they're somewhat distinct. So so you might describe the patient as dyspneic or short of, short of breath, depending on the circumstance, and what other descriptors might you use? Yeah. Uh, accessory muscle use. Accessory muscle use. Good. What else? Yeah. Uh, positioning. So like tripod. Yeah, tripoding. Now, it's interesting. Like tripoding is more of a uh, thing that we make a mental note of, right? So, uh, I don't usually report a patient's tripoding because almost everyone who is short of breath or dyspneic will be tripoding. So it's just I make a mental note of it. I see them. Uh, and I see they're tripoding, but accessory muscle use, on the other hand, gives you a clear indication of how they're struggling to breathe. But that's uh, tripoding is an important mental note, right? Like purse yeah, pursed lip breathing. What else? Yeah. Any like um, sounds that you might hear? Yeah, adventitious Sorry. sounds. Yeah, for sure. What else? Yeah. Some kind of color change, maybe like. Sure. Color change associated with their difficulty breathing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what else? It gives you, uh, gives the receiving nurse some insight into how bad this dyspnea is, apart from cyanosis and accessory muscle use. And Jake? So they're having uh, like, like the amount of
1: words they can
0: use? Yep, the amount of words they can say between breasts. Yeah, that's really important, right? Like they're, um, uh, if I count the words and it sounds like six, seven, eight words between breasts, I'm probably not gonna report you know seven words per breath or six words per breath i'm probably just going to say the patient's dyspneic, uh able to speak and uh uh, able to speak but not complete sentences Um, on the other hand if they had three word dyspnea i would say they're three word dyspnea but um, i might say they're able to speak five six words but uh, Uh, if they're able to speak full sentences I would say they're able to speak full sentences as opposed to once you get in that six seven eight word range there's not much value to quantifying it you know you just say they're speaking in near full sentences not quite full sentences, whatever okay good Um, now asthma Uh, remember I was saying uh, maybe I wasn't saying it to you guys I might have been saying it to second year students you've got a limited number of Uh, conditions that you can treat pharmacologically Uh, and those conditions you should know the pathophysiology really well so you should know the pathophysiology of asthma, COPD, stable angina, unstable angina, ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, uh, anaphylaxis um, and so on and uh, um, once you start your rideouts, the paramedic crews are going to pick your brain about patho, so you should focus on at least those conditions that you treat pharmacologically or with interventions like CPAP, <coughs> including this one. And um, if you know the triad of asthma, the pathological triad, and the clinical triad of asthma, you'll make a big impression on the respiratory therapist when you're in the hospital. Now, anyone remember the pathological triad of asthma? You're welcome to look it up if you want to or talk to the person next to you. Think of the pathological and the the clinical triad of asthma. If you had this memorized, very impressive. Yeah, bronchoconstriction. Same thing, yeah, bronchospasm, bronchoconstriction, yeah. Um, so, why do patients have bronchospasm? Think of it think of that way. Do people without asthma typically have bronchospasm? So, why, why do they have bronchospasm? So, it might be an allergen, might be some sort of precipitant, might be intrinsic or extrinsic, but why do they have those reactions, though? All I hear is... Mm-hmm. 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 Ashley. Okay, it's usually precipitated by some sort of irritant or it could be intrinsic. Yes, hyperreactivity. Hyperreactivity. And one last sort of chronic problem they have. Yeah, inflammation. Okay, what about the classic uh, clinical triad? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Riley? Dyspnea, cough, and wheeze. Okay, good. Yeah. So chronic airway inflammation, hyperreactivity, bronchospasm, and you can throw in excess mucus production in there, and dyspnea, cough, and wheeze. Sometimes in asthmatic attacks, I've seen patients who just cough. Like They don't have an audible wheeze, but they just cough. They're sort of in the early stage. So not a lot to commit to memory, but if you've got this committed to memory, you've got the basics down. And that's good, you need the bare basics. Um, some causes of bronchospasm. Asthmatics or non-asthmatics? Anaphylaxis, Anaphylaxis, good. What else? I think I've heard some of you blurt out answers to the prior slide. Allergens, yeah. Anaphylaxis, exposure to allergens like pollen, dust. Anything else that causes bronchospasm? Infection. Sorry? Infection? Infection, yeah, can cause bronchospasm. Yeah, good. Right. Did they
1: say
0: chronic bronchitis? Uh, no one said chronic bronchitis, no, but um, uh, bronchitis and bronchospasm are a little bit different, but you could get bronchospasm with the bronchitis, yeah. Airway burns? Yep, possibly deep airway burns for sure. Anything else? Along those lines, what else might irritate the lungs in a healthy person? Kyle? Sorry? Not typically, not typically. Oh, uh, you mean smoke from a fire? That might do it. I thought you meant like cigarette smoke. No. Yeah, toxins right inhale toxins you inhale pneumonia or hydrogen chlor- chloride or something you're gonna get uh, bronchospastic um, I told you about my five year old day eh, in the swimming pool the story about that Did I you that story yeah, inhale, the chlorine. inhale the chlorine yeah yeah the big uh, plume that came up out of the pool um, and what drug do you carry what two drugs do you carry for treating uh, bronchospasm Sobidomol and epi. When do you give epi? (laughs) Hmm? When you have to PPV them, yeah. So severe bronchospasm, when you have to PPV them. And they have to be asthmatic. They have to have a history of asthma. So we don't give it to other forms of bronchospasm. Uh, If you were considering it, you'd have to patch, but yeah. Severe asthma that requires positive pressure ventilation. So the patient with severe dyspnea and maybe altered mental status, an altered mental status doesn't have to be like drowsy, it can be just restless, um, you know. good. Um, now you give an epi, can you give salbutamol after epi? Yes. Yeah, you give epi, you auscultate the chest and if they're still wheezy, um, you have to think about You know, do they still need PPV after the epi, the hope is that they won't. That you PPV, then we give them the intramuscular epi, and that they start to improve in two, three, four minutes. And at that point, you reassess whether they need PPV. But you auscultate the chest, and you know, at four or five minutes if they're still wheezy, um, you can give them salbutamol. Um, and um, what receptors uh, does salbutamol work on? Beta two, yeah, beta two. Um, and when you give salbutamol, it also stimulates what other receptor, especially if you give it in repeated doses. What are you saying? You have to speak louder. Alpha one. No. What say? Beta one. Yeah, yeah, beta one. So beta two, bronchodilation. Beta one, uh, increased cardiac uh, rate. So. So you get, those patients will increase their heart rate. Good. Um, pulmonary embolus. Someone define for me a pulmonary embolus. Yeah. It yeah. Uh, can be fat. More often, it's just a clot that forms where? Legs, yeah, yeah. So it can be. It's usually a patient who's got a history of deep vein thrombosis. Could be a clot from the calf. Could be a clot from the thigh. Clot from the thigh is worse, worse prognosis because they're usually big clots, and they uh, they break loose. They travel to the lungs. And um, uh, if it's a big enough clot, these patients will die very suddenly. Sometimes um, you'll get a call for them though, and the only history is they've had a syncopal episode. So they've blocked an artery. Um, and they had a cell episode but by the time you get there the the clot has broken down into smaller pieces and uh, they're just having chest pain and shortness of breath um, so we've described the etiology uh, what's the pain like typically yeah pinpoint typically and how would they describe it how what's the quality like typically usually sharp yeah so pleuritic or sharp yeah usually sharp pinpoint um, and they'll be shortness of breath with that uh, they're typically tachycardic as well so um, you want to get uh, a history uh, we don't want to spend a lot of time in the scene with these patients you want to get a history and find out if they have a, a risk for pulmonary embolus risks include deep vein thrombosis as you know uh, if they've been bedridden for a period of time they could form clots if they just come off a uh, long flight that day, or the day before, or a couple of days ago. Um, you know, flights to Australia, China. Um, they may have uh, DVT. Good. So typically, sudden onset of pleuritic chest pain, dyspnea, tachypnea, uh, equal air entry, right? Because um, we're talking about a, a vessel that's clotted, not a, a vessel that's blocked, not the lungs, <coughs> the lungs themselves. If they've had the pulmonary embolus for. Uh, two, three, four hours. Uh, there's probably going to be an inflammatory process. The lung will undergo infarction, so there's probably going to be some fluid. So you might hear some localized crackles. Um, they may be splinting or guarding, coughing. There may be. Why would there be neck vein distention? Jugular venous distention.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the right ventricle is trying to pump blood, but it's p- trying to pump it against this blockage. So blood backs up into the neck veins. Good. Uh, what's hemoptysis? Coughing up blood. Yeah. Don't you love medical terminology? Love it. Paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. <laughs> hemoptysis. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish between hematemesis and hemoptysis. Right. So you got to ask the question. You know, is, are you is this blood coming from your belly or are you coughing it up? Some people think they're coughing it up, but it's just coming up their esophagus and then they're coughing it out. You know, they're choking on it. There may be localized wheezing or crackles, diaphoresis, syncope. Oops. Uh, 10% of patients present in shock, which makes sense, right? If you've got a blockage in the pulmonary artery and uh, it's diminishing the blood getting to the left ventricle, then cardiac output's going to be reduced. Yeah, Ingrid? So I have a question about human cases. Um,
1: when I moved from the country to the city for uh, for school, mm-hmm. within two weeks I developed um, a cough where I was coughing my blood. Mm. And I went to uh, a doctor clinic and they said that it was normal for people who came from the country to move out of the city to react really? to the air. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if that was accurate or not.
0: Welcome to our pollution. I've, I've never heard that before. That sounds like a horrible thing. I, I
1: will say I moved, I, did, I moved from the country to the city back to a little bit more rural.
0: Yeah yeah well I had bronchitis for at least three months of the year my entire life until I moved to British Columbia and now I hardly <laughs> ever get a cold so BC cured me too so, <laughs> so don't live in Hamilton or water down that would be my advice or Toronto yeah yeah that sounds really unusual but sounds like a horrible consequence of um, uh, pollution Damn those climate deniers. All right, pneumothorax. Um, mm-hmm. I'm hearing a ticking sound. Is that a bomb or what am I hearing? It's it's buzzing.
1: Buzzing. It's it's buzzing. Buzzing. Is that what it is? Yeah, okay.
0: So I shouldn't call, I don't need to call security. It's stopped no, now. It's one of those lights there? I
1: have yeah, so no there. idea. But <laughs> now you speak up. <laughs> yeah, now I, yeah, now
0: we hear you. Sure. <laughs> Found your voice. <laughs> um, yeah, I can call physical resources about that if you tell me which light it is. Uh, okay, so... It sounds like it's coming from your purse. No, I, <laughs> no, I think it's
1: like I over I there. there. I hear it in my ear and it's like... you
0: yeah. hear it in your ear. <laughs> that's good we, we literally had some sort of superpowers you could like smell the sound or something <laughs> my
1: skin, like, it just, like, <laughs> well,
0: that's like people who say i was thinking to myself like who the hell else were you thinking to You're like <laughs> <laughs> okay so <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Riley. Right? P- getting picked on. Stop I know. Being to me. I know you guys stop being mean to each other. <laughs> okay. Pneumothorax. So, let's talk about pneumothorax broadly. There's simple pneumos, there's tension pneumos. Let's talk about the different causes of pneumos, the most common causes of pneumos. <clears throat> give me some give me some, well describe it for me. First of all, what is? Let's start with what is in. You just like it, like even better than paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. Really? Better than bilateral periorbital ecchymosis. it's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> that's that's the trouble. Hey, you're out you're out of the bar. Two boneheads get into a fight. One of them walks by you as after the fight's over, and you look and you think bilateral periorbital ecchymosis. <laughs>
1: Unilateral infraorbital
0: ecchymosis. Paramedic school will forever change you, ruin you. (laughs) Okay, so describe
1: a pneumo for me. Oh, okay, sure, go ahead. I was just—it's so funny when you're
0: talking about language and stuff. So, my dad's German, right? And I
1: always know he's talking about me when he uses paramedic-based terminology and the German words. For everything medical,
0: it's ridiculous. Mm. Like the ambulance is Kronkenwagon, and like- Kronkenwagon, oh <laughs> I love it.
1: And, and then the Let's crunkin get in the Kronkenwagon. <laughs> <laughs> or like Kronkenhaus is like the hospital, right? Kronkenhaus. So like,
0: i wish I'd known that 20 years ago, you know, <laughs> I could say Kronkenwagen. All right, we got a call, let's get in the Kronkenwagon. <laughs> I know how to say you look like you have diarrhea today in German, but, okay. Uh, describe pneumo for me before we digress any further, which you know I'm inclined to do. Okay, <laughs> Ingrid, go ahead. So
1: it's like air in the pleural space,
0: right? It's air in the pleural space, yeah. Between what what two layers? Mm-hmm. visceral and parietal. Visceral and parietal, yeah, visceral and parietal layer. good, okay, um, and what are some causes? trauma. Trauma, what kind of trauma? Just W stabbing. What other kind of trauma? Blunt trauma. trauma. Can you have um, blunt trauma pneumothorax without rib fractures? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. How come? How? Well, I know I had one. It was from like a grocery, right? Like a what? I I had a pneumo, and it was from my
1: grocery.
0: A gross, berg?
1: a gross
0: bird? Oh, gross Gross Oh, growth. Gross. I thought you said gross bird. You know, like it's like a bird box experience or something. Hey, can I ask a dumb question? Are there any birds in bird box? Yeah.
1: Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's birds in the box. Okay. It's way too high, John. So, so many too it I All of a sudden,
0: it's like, oh, is killing it. themselves, and then two years later. And these, and th- in USA okay, th- let's th- not digress any further. Okay, so uh, growth spurt, yeah. not gross birds. Exactly. And uh, uh, so you had a spontaneous pneumo. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, so that's one cause. Um, <coughs> what's the risk of a spontaneous pneumo de- developing into a tension pneumo? Yeah. I would the same as: <laughs> Lower risk. Yeah, much lower risk. Yeah, very unlikely. honestly don't know. but uh, much lower risk of uh, spontaneous pneumo, like, like a bro- growth spurt-related pneumo to progress to attention pneumo? less likely. Not impossible, but far less likely. So if I get a spontaneous pneumo, I don't worry about it a whole lot, uh, but still treat it urgently. I'll give that a test too. but probably priority three, maybe priority four. It depends on how uncomfortable the patient is. Okay, so spontaneous pneumo. What other kinds of pneumos? Trauma, you said? GSW, stabbing, uh, blunt trauma. Okay, fair enough. Uh, What medical patients are at risk of uh, developing a pneumo? Yeah. COPD? Yeah, COPD, exactly. So emphysemics. they have blebs. Um, usually they, if they develop a cough from a cold, or something, uh, and they're coughing for a long time, they can rupture a bleb. Or if they go flying, uh, they can rupture a bleb. Like, emphysemics are not supposed to fly on commercial airlines, because uh, at 30,000 feet, the cabin pressure is somewhere around 8,000, and uh, air expands with altitude, uh, because the volume of air is inversely proportional to the pressure. Um, to which it's uh, uh, pressure exerted upon it. That's Boyle's Law. So that means that um, when you go up a plane, you'll notice that the creamers for your coffee are distended. The lids are distended from air expansion in there. The bags of pretzels are ballooned out. That's Boyle's Law, air expansion in there. Um, don't drink coffee or tea on the plane either because it's, it's like water from the toilet it's the same source and it's probably not filtered so it, you don't recommend <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm digressing a bit but yeah I don't recommend uh, coffee or or tea
1: get
0: take take an empty uh, take an empty b- get a coffee before you board the aircraft like uh, go through security and then get a Starbucks or something and then board the plane that's would be my advice yeah so does
1: air expand in the body
0: yeah. And, cause I'm wonder, i I know when I fly, I end up with really bad pain, like, Yeah, and stuff, and stuff. yeah, so just don't eat cabbage, don't drink fizzy drinks. Um, don't eat beans. Don't eat beans. <laughs> There's actually a term for that, high altitude filetis, expulsion. Oh god, of first there is. true, yeah. Uh, yeah, cabbage gives you gas, okay, yeah. You. So anything that makes you gassy, like I know some people, mushrooms make them gassy.
1: <laughs> <and> <laughs>
0: they don't make you gassy. You're, that's good. That's good. You probably chew your food well. I, yes. You're probably good eater. You're a thorough, thorough, thorough. Is it because you savor the exquisite flavor of no, it all, or? Choke
1: a lot on food and I'm oh,
0: oh, okay. But that's good. <laughs> good okay, so enough about farting. Um, so a spontaneous pneumo and an emphysemic Now that can progress to a tension pneumo. So. A uh, ruptured bleb can progress to attention tension pneumo. The other one is status asthmaticus. Now status asthmaticus is very rare. It's rare that you encounter a patient in a true status asthmaticus. Those are the candidates for epinephrine, for sure. And uh, the trouble with status asthmaticus is you can get such profound uh, bronchoconstriction and mucus plugging that you'll hear a silent chest and you won't know if it's the bronchospasm mucus plugging or whether it's a pneumothorax. So uh, for... An emphysemic with diminished air entry, an asthmatic with diminished air entry, a trauma patient with diminished air entry, you're gonna call for ACB backup because they can do a needle thoracostomy. And um, now in terms of patho, in terms of patho, um, we have air accumulating in the pleural space. Uh, What happens in, uh, what else goes on in that chest? that's gonna lead to something life-threatening yeah what what's shifting mediastinum yeah now it might be mediastium media I don't know I've never heard anyone pronounce it that way but uh, mediastinum I think it's mediastinum so you're gonna get a mediastinal shift No, there's only one shift and it's, think of it this way, if you've got a pneumo here, yeah. it has to, s- mediastinum has to shift away from it, right? That's
1: what I thought. Yeah. Isn't there a shift being the same side? Or was that for a oil chest, if we are going to be honest? That's a different You were
0: asleep last semester, is so what you said? i and by the end of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, so mediastinal shift away from the uh, the pneumothorax. And uh, what's what's the threat to life that happens with a mediastinal shift? Tricky moves too. Yeah. That's right. It's compression of the vena cava. So when you start getting a mediastinal shift, think of the vena cava as a, like a cheap brand garden hose that's been sitting out in the sun for hours. It's just uh, an easy collapsible tube the pressure in the vena cava is only about 8 to 12 millimeters of mercury right so you get a metastinal shift it compresses the vena cava that decreases uh, preload decreases cardiac output decreases blood pressure so um, that can be life-threatening and ultimately that can cause the patient to go into cardiac arrest so if you can relieve the, the the air that's under pressure in that chest, in that pleural space with a needle, put a needle in the chest, it's gotta be a four inch needle, 14 gauge needle, and just goes right into the chest, second intercostal space, mid clavicular line. That'll relieve the pressure and allow the mediastinum to shift back and uh, take the pressure off the vena cava. So with pneumothorax, in terms of clinical presentation, the key things are um, severe dyspnea, Okay. Now, I had a patient once, uh, the first patient I experienced this with, it was interesting. Um, I auscultated her chest. She had no air entry at all in the left lung. Zero. But she wasn't the slightest bit dyspneic. What do you think was going on with her? Zero air entry in the left side, but not dyspneic. Yeah they removed her lung. Yeah, she had cancer and she had an entire lung removed. Yeah, so, so it's, it's the, my point is that um, if you're thinking tension pneumothorax, you're not gonna have a tension pneumothorax without severe dyspnea. So severe dyspnea comes first. Uh, and the other thing that clinches the diagnosis is markedly diminished or absent air entry on the, on the one side. Those are the keys, Riley. Okay. Yeah. So
1: Say she had one lung. Like, did she have to like get used to breathing like that? Like, would Mm -hmm. she be in like a place for a while? Like, be
0: taught how to adjust to that I'm not sure, but yeah, I would. I would think it would take quite quite a bit of time to adjust to having just one lung. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Okay, so these are the two key things: severe dyspnea. Um, Now, does this have a high sensitivity or specificity? Or both dyspnea sensitivity. sensitivity almost no specificity right if I if I just told you you have a 39 year old male with severe dyspnea what's wrong with him you go Rob like I can give you at least two pages of things that could be wrong with him. but markedly diminished or absent her entry high sensitivity or high specificity or both Yes, kind of both, but definitely high specificity, right? Very few things cause markedly diminished or absent air Now, the other things that can cause it are things like a pleural effusion, which is fluid between um, the uh, parietal and visceral pleura, um, or severe pneumonia, But usually with both of these you'll get a history of an infection that's been going on for some time, probably a cough associated with this. The other things that we look for are things like, you know, JVD, like the other one that will clinch a diagnosis, sub-Q emphysema. Right? Um, There are very few things that will give you sub-Q emphysema other than a pneumothorax or a tracheal injury. Very few things cause air to dissect into the tissues. What does sub-Q emphysema feel like when you palpate it? Rice Krispies. If you want to know what sub-Q emphysema feels like, um, go to the cafeteria, uh, buy a little box of Rice Krispies, put it into, I'm not kidding, put it into a little baggie, bring a baggie from home, slip it underneath the skin of the mannequin. Don't tell anyone. And then have have one of your classmates palpate the chest and just tell them in advance, you know, I think you're gonna feel sub-Q emphysema under the skin. That's exactly what it feels like, yeah. It doesn't make a sound. Like when you push it, you don't hear it. It's not like bubble wrap, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, it's, I wouldn't say it's a common thing. It's usually more, but if you have blunt chest trauma, you could easily have a pneumothorax on both sides. Um, if you had a tension pneumothorax on both sides, you'd be dead. <coughs> if you had, uh, but here's uh, an important point in all this. Give me one second there. An important point. Um, if you get a patient who's a traumatic VSA, like, say, someone involved in a, in a motor vehicle collision, I'll tell you now, most paramedics. They get a traumatic VSA, they'll get the guy out of the car, they'll start CPR, uh, and it'll be a long time before anyone auscultates the chest. You'll BVM this guy, uh, but it'll be a long time before anyone auscultates the chest. There, there are a couple of cases that I'm aware of, and there are probably many, many more, out of the coroner's office where the coroner called me when I was a program manager at the base hospital and said, Uh, We had a a patient who was a traumatic VSA, but he had a tension pneumothorax, which means that he might have survived had the crew thought to do a needle thoracostomy. And what happens in in cardiac arrest is people often neglect to auscultate the chest early. So I would say whoever's BVMing, whoever's bag valve mass the patient, you gotta communicate to the team that I'm having difficulty getting air in the lungs, I'm not getting good chest rise. So the person who's the team leader, either PCP or ACP, auscultates the chest early, because that's a, a life threat that can be reversed quickly. Um, did you have a question? Yeah,
1: I was just wondering, if someone did have, an have a pneumothorax on both
0: sides, how's that gonna affect the needle uh, spinal shift? Uh, probably won't be a shift, and the shift, the shift is n- neither here nor there, it's, it's what the shift causes, so if you got a tension pneumothorax coming from both sides, even if you don't, you're probably gonna have major vena cava compression, that's But even if you don't have that, you're gonna have major, major hypoxia because both lungs are not inflating, right? So either way, if they got a bilateral tension pneumo, they're probably dead. It's a question of how quickly can you identify that they have bilateral pneumos. Um, Let's just say in 35 years and having worked uh, in the critical care environment for 10 years, I've, I've never seen bilateral tension pneumos. I've seen multiple, multiple patients with bilateral pneumos, maybe with tension on one side, not quite attention tension on the other side, but never bilateral tension pneumothoraces. So, not to say it doesn't happen, I'm sure it does. One of you will call me a week after you graduate and say, Rob, you won't believe this, I had bilateral tension pneumos on this guy. And I'll say. Ah. Okay. Now, the other one is uh, since we've talked on it, is tracheal deviation. So, you're going to assess for tracheal deviation. How do you assess for tracheal deviation? (laughs) Can you look or do you have to feel? You have to feel. Where do you feel? Yeah, the sternal notch. So right at the manubrium, right the trachea, okay. Now I can show you 500 x-rays of attention pneumothorax, which unfortunately, unfortunately shouldn't even exist. They say you should never see an x-ray of attention pneumothorax, because it should be diagnosed clinically and treated before you get an x-ray. But there are mi- probably millions of x-rays on the internet of attention pneumothorax. If you Google uh, attention pneumothorax images, you can see for yourself. But when you look at those x-rays, you'll find that even when there's a mediastinal shift, and you see the trachea shifted down here. If you look at the trachea at the manubrium, the trachea is midline. So um, a tracheal shift has an extraordinarily low sensitivity, very, very low sensitivity, like a palpable tracheal shift probably has a low sensitivity. Patient might actually feel a tugging, but they're gonna be so dyspneic with attention tension pneumothorax, so afraid of dying, um, they're probably not gonna notice a tracheal tugging. Does your trachea feel like it's being tugged on?
1: I'm dying!
0: Save me! <laughs> and does the trachea shift towards or away from uh, the pneumothorax, Riley? It's away. it's away. It's away. I
1: thought it was away, but I could have sworn Sean said the main class one day. Yeah. He did. He did. He he did. Was I told him. Right I, like yeah. yeah. I think it might be with like flail chest, though, where there's like
0: did say there was one on the same side. yeah no matter so typically pain is pleuritic on the affected side dyspnea tachypnea unilateral um, decreased air entry so that's a pneumothorax right tension pneumo would be three down errors it would be markedly diminished or absent air entry um, there may or may not be hypotension. I was gonna mention hypotension, so um, if you're working with an ACP, if I, if I call a doc to get an order for needle thoracostomy, most docs want, before they give me an order for needle thoracostomy, because they feel that's fairly invasive, they wanna know what the blood pressure is, because um, a pneumothorax is not defined in any way, shape, or form by the blood pressure, but I think the feeling amongst some of the docs is uh, if the patient's blood pressure is still good, then Probably isn't enough of a mediastinal shift to cause uh, compression of the vena cava. So, call me back if the pressure drops. Um, now, these patients might still have severe dyspnea and markedly diminished or absent errantry, but it may be not because they have a tension pneumo yet, but because they just have multiple rib fractures and it's it's exquisitely painful for them to breathe so they tend to breathe on the unaffected side more and take very little air on the left side or the the other side the injured side it's remarkable how you can actually do that so um, they look for hypotension uh, and if I get a doc who says um, Rob just transport but if the patient deteriorates call me back I'll usually just say can I just have a PRN order to do a needle thoracostomy if it deteriorates? I, I don't want to lose five minutes trying to call you back. And the docs will usually say, yeah, no problem. So so tension pneumothorax, severe pleuritic chest pain, localized the affected side, severe dyspnea, tachypnea, markedly diminished or absent entry, with or without subcutaneous emphysema. If you got subcutaneous emphysema, you can be pretty sure you got a pneumothorax. Um, hypotension, likely JVD. Um, they have JVD if, if you're compressing the vena cava, uh, that blood gets backed up into the neck veins. Now, on the other hand, if the patient's hypovolemic, they're not going to have JVD, right? So if they've got attention pneumothorax and they're hypovolemic, you're not going to get JVD. So I wouldn't hang my hat on JVD, but it's something you notice. Tracheal deviation, I'll be honest, I, th- I don't think I palpated the trachea in 20 years, because uh, to me it's one of the least important things in the diagnosis, provisional diagnosis of attention pneumothorax. But if, if I called the doc and the doc said is a trachea uh, deviated I, I what I probably say is uh, I don't know haven't checked it do you want me to check it and they probably say no don't worry about it um, but you need to check it because everybody tests you on that sorry Oh, yeah that's a bleb in an emphysemic yeah Google is the best thing ever right if you want to know what a something looks like just Google the image like look at that that was probably hundreds hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of alveoli now it's just a distended one distended sac um, sometimes they'll do surgeries to remove blebs and these patients who can't walk more than a block you Guys are very chatty over there Riley okay now you guys are really chatty over there okay so they might surgically just remove some of these blebs and it's amazing, like uh, one week post-operatively, these patients are walking six, seven, eight blocks. Any questions about uh, the review? Yeah. the tracheal deviation question, Mm -hmm. is it different when it's
1: open versus closed in the BRX? I don't think so. That was the question. it, right? Yeah. Then the pressure is different, right? We'll have to ask you on.
0: It was a very specific test question. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the specifics, but mm-hmm. Let's let's just let's just put it this way. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't have any sleepless nights trying to find the answer to that question, or, you know, pick every smart person's brain that you can find over that question because it's it's such a. Uh, an uncommon incidental finding when it comes to palpating the trachea that you know, the really, 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 really important stuff is severe dyspnea, markedly diminished or absent air entry, And if you got subcutaneous emphysema, you know there's air in the pleural space because it's leaking into the tissues. But not having subcutaneous emphysema doesn't rule the out. Yeah, Jay? It, it pretty, pretty what? It'd be a late finding, yeah. But
1: after What's that? You have hopefully found it
0: Yeah, I mean, everything you're gonna assess is gonna happen in less than a minute, minute and a half, right? Uh, Anyway, but uh, before I patch a base hospital doc, I gotta get a full set of vitals. And this is a a horrible call because uh, oftentimes these patients are awake, they're struggling to breathe, they're dying, they are dying, they might tell you they're dying, they might be shouting, I can't catch my breath, I can't catch my breath, Um, I can't, or more like, I can't catch my breath, I can't, I can't, and they look like they're going to die. they got look of impending doom. Um, so you want to act quickly, but you can't act too quickly. You've got to get a full set of vitals and call up a base hospital doc. Ingrid, do you have a question? Um, my question was, is the difference between a spontaneous pneumothorax and a pneumothorax generally how much air is in the pleural space? No. Nope. No, the difference is that a spontaneous pneumo, um, happens as the word describes. It happens spontaneously. So typically in in uh, tall male, tall skinny males and fe- or females, um, where where the skeletal system grows maybe a little faster than the lungs, and something happens, maybe a tear in the um, visceral pleura, and air starts to escape. Okay. So, but when you
1: say that a spontaneous, can develop into a? Dentist,
0: no, I didn't say that. I said just the opposite. That, it, oh, okay. that spontaneous is rarely develops into attention, okay, Rarely if ever. Now, um, some people would say that an emphysemic uh, pneumo may happen spontaneously, and that's true. But most often, uh, emphysemics rupture bleb because they've had a cold and they're coughing for hours. That's usually what happens. Yeah? Um, why do you get blebs? Yeah, so... Cigarette smoking is the most common cause, and so what happens with cigarette smoking is um, uh, the chemicals, uh, well, the chemicals um, cause a chronic inflammatory process in the lungs, and eventually there's a breakdown of the interalveolar septa, and because there's um, inflammation and mucus production excess mucus production um, air sort of enters the spaces and then can't escape and so those as the alveolar receptor break down those air sacs start to expand because they get gas trapping uh, from all the damage and that's how they become bluffs. Yeah. so another good one uh, you guys have a path book Uh, That's another good patho to look up and get really familiar with, is uh, is emphysema, COPD in general. Um, So that when you do your write-outs, your preceptors will say, Oh my God, what school did you go to? That's amazing. Uh, Okay, let's take a break until five after.